0: This episode is powered by denmeditation.com with locations in Los Angeles that normalize meditation and make it available to all. Though meditation is the primary focus, the bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. Hi, and welcome to Den Talks Podcast, where we chat with people about their journey of self-discovery in hopes that it helps you along with yours. Today, I'm speaking with Scott Tusa, who spent seven years as a Buddhist monk. He was ordained by the Dalai Lama himself, and then he chose to hang up his robe. Is that what you say? Hang up your robe? Like, what is it called now?
1: <laughs> um, uh, give, kind of give back the vows. I was a monk for nine years, though.
0: Nine years. There you go. Nine years when yeah. he gave back his vows. He's now still practicing and a teacher of Buddhism. He resides in New York and he continues to teach all around the U.S. and has an amazing practical approach on how to apply the teachings of Buddhism in everyday life. So let's just jump in. But first, I want you guys to remember that at the end, he will leave us with a personal practice, a 10-minute meditation on working skillfully with emotions. All right. I don't even know where to begin with you because there's so (laughs) much to talk about, which is amazing. But let's start with the fact that you were a monk, which is amazing. And I yeah. only that at age 28, right?
1: Yeah. That's when I, when I became a monk. Yeah. I mean,
0: that seems very young to me. So how, how does that even start? Like, where did that, like, where were you originally from?
1: Um, I'm from the Bay Area from San Mateo. This is like kind of a little town in between Palo Alto and San Francisco. And um, I think for me, my spiritual path uh, really started after my mom's death when I was 15. And I kind of just started a search of, of looking for more meaning, looking for more purpose in life. And I didn't even know like a name to put to that. It was just a feeling that I had like a really deep longing uh, Had you really, uh, for did, something.
0: Had you thought of death at all before your mom passed? Like were you just all of a sudden confronted? Not with
1: really. I was questions. just like, how much weed can I smoke? <laughs> <laughs> and how, how many forties can I drink with my friends? Cause I was like into the barrier of punk rock scene and so it was all about going to shows and getting wasted. Are you a DJ? <laughs> Am I
0: making that up? Were you a DJ or were you just play? you were just really into music?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I was a teenager I was more in the punk rock scene then later on in my 20s I got into like dance music a little bit, like electronic dance music and started making it. Yeah.
0: Right, that I remember. Cuz I always found that fascinating. <laughs> I'm like I love that you are making like dance music and then you became a <laughs> like it's just so incongruous to me but I love that. <laughs> um, so your mom passed away and also you were dealing with some bigger questions. And so you started seeking the answers. Were you seeking yeah, and specifically? So
1: I, I think I just started reading different books and checking stuff out. And, um, I got into African religion for a while. Uh, cause I was really into, um, uh, when I, after my mom passed away, I got really into Brazilian Cuban music and I started to get into the culture and the religion, which is a blend of Catholicism and African uh, shamanic traditions.
0: Were you raised religious? Like, was there anything influencing you that way? Or is this totally fresh?
1: No, totally random. I mean, I was raised like reformed Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) It's totally random. It just
0: gets more interesting.
1: (laughs) And so, uh, and I didn't really connect with the, you know, the religion of my birth so much. Though culturally, I connect with, I I say my stomach is Jewish and will remain (laughs) Jewish.
0: I always said that too, not necessarily my stomach, but I always said culturally, I'm, I'm Jewish. And all exactly. Thing. Yeah. So you um, said you started reading books. It was, it was like a little bit of Brazilian, Catholicism, African religion. And then how did you steer towards, how did you end up finding Buddhism?
1: Yeah. So when I went to um, uh, college in Boston when I was like 18, I got into like a asana practice, like hatha yoga and physical yoga. And then eventually um, I read Autobiography of a Yogi by uh, Mm -hmm. Paramahansa Yogananda. And that's when I was like, wow, there's people called yogis and that's amazing. And I wanted to be a yogi (laughs) and um, kind of digging a little bit uh, deeper into Hinduism. I recognized like um, as I kind of like cross-reference Buddhism, Buddhism started to speak to me a little bit more. Like I like the I'm a very analytical person, so I really like the kind of explanations and I liked that it the kind of worldview coming from Buddhism or how they express kind of our predicament as a human being. I really connected with, it made sense to me, I guess is the way to put it.
0: So can we talk and, about that for a second? Cause I know a lot of people yeah. with Buddhism, I find when you go to most like when you talk to people in the most basic form people who might just be introduced to it, one of the things they connect with a lot is how it references suffering and human suffering a lot. Mm-hmm. What is your take on that? Cause for me, it actually was a little bit of a, turn off, and not that I don't think people suffer, and not that I don't think people should accept their suffering and know that that's part of life. I felt that people dwelled in it a lot, like people used it instead of like, to me, instead of taking what I think was, and I haven't studied Buddhism as much as you have, but what was intended, I felt like people really took it and made it a crutch and then it became like everything came about suffering and they started looking at anything that wasn't perfect in their life as suffering and uh, and i keep saying suffering because mm-hmm. that's what fell and also became a very heavy word so what part of it was relating to you and does any and was part of this about the suffering more about how buddhism talks about human suffering
1: yeah i i mean for me, I think initially, not really, because in in Buddhism, we have this principle of, uh, uh, we call it Tathagatagarbha in Sanskrit, or in English, we would say Buddha nature, which is this principle that um, each and every uh, sentient being has uh, a quality of wakefulness, has a quality uh, of the potential for enlightenment. So rather than the kind of idea I felt was drilled into me from a young age of that I'm screwed up and somehow I need to improve. It gave me hope because it was like oh actually underneath is qualities of joy awakening love and compassion that nearly i can connect with through the buddhist path and so the ideas of dukkha or or you know usually dukkha is translated as suffering but dukkha represents a lot more than suffering it represents gross suffering of course and subtler dissatisfaction and the nature of change and all that kind of thing um but then the, the process of coming into the understanding of the personal truth or to know suffering, uh, or dukkha is what the Buddha said. Um, it was more a process of like knowing then what's binding me so I'm not experiencing that Buddha nature, right? Mm-hmm. So it was more like a little bit of a positive thing for me personally. Although I agree with you, sometimes when it's sometimes it can come off as that as like Buddhism is dwelling in, the, in all this kind of darkness.
0: And I don't actually think it's necessarily Buddhism is dwelling. I feel like some people use it as a way yes. to hang on to it. Like they almost misread what the point is in some ways, you know what I mean? And it's like, they're looking for a quick answer. Like I like to say, sometimes a spiritual bypass and it's like, mm-hmm. Oh, this is allowing me to suffer so I can suffer, versus, I don't know, switching the point of view a little bit.
1: Totally. Totally. And, and that's, I think that's hitting the nail on the head. And, and I think that's where, when we go deeper, we come into con- into a context where it's like, it's really just talking about like what, where we're bound and how we're bound. And then because of that, then we can start to find freedom. Because I think it's a lot of like, it's all, you know, it's very practical in a sense because a lot of our life is like that when we're stuck in like, let's say like a frustrating friendship, that's just really codependent <laughs> and not working out until we come to a recognition of that we're not going to be able to be free from the pain of that situation, right. right? Or maybe reconciling it or whatever, talking it out with the person and figuring out something that works. So I think the Buddhist path is very practical like that, where it's like, okay, well, what's binding us to dissatisfaction? And what's how are we relating to our emotions and thoughts that are, are holding us back from our true nature? And we would call that true nature of Buddha nature. You know, we, we have a, a culture where we embody original sin, even if we weren't taught it. Directly, it kind of just is pervasive, and also, you know, in in hyper materialism that ends up conditioning us to sort of placing our value and self worth on the outside and what we produce rather than who we are fundamentally. Just that we're valuable just as a human being, just because we're born. And so, I think for me, I just, you know, that's the way I explain it now. But of course, I didn't know how to explain that when I was a kid. It was just this sense of not feeling quite right, feeling not so okay in my skin. Um, and and that, that developing into, you know, quite a lot of uh, low self-worth over time.
0: Did you have a good and relationship so, with your parents?
1: Yeah, in general, I did, yeah. And I think it was just something I personally learned just more culturally. And of course, that's influenced by parents as well. And
0: oh, by the way, I, to- I totally agree with everything you're saying. You're right. It's like even just in school and like exam, it's just exactly. there is a constant, even at the most basic level, with having the greatest, most supportive parents, it's still pervasive. You're absolutely right. And it's exactly. more work to undo that than it is to learn it. Um,
1: yeah. And I, Buddhism gave me a context to understand like, Hey, like you're, you're, you're not fundamentally flawed. You're okay. It's just, you, you have to uncover that, right? Cause it's covered right now by the conditioning and the belief that there's something wrong with me.
0: Right. So as you got older um, and you started studying Buddhism more and were feeling these. Were you feeling like still in your 20s? Were you still feeling that kind of terror? Of like I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm not enough. Was did Buddhism really feel like it was giving you those answers and the clarity?
1: No, that's a really good question. I, you know, for for a long time, even even entering and becoming a monk, Buddhism gave me the the, the intellectual clarity, like the the cognitive clarity to understand that wasn't true. Right. That 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 the the self the loathing or, 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 any low self-worth I was experiencing isn't the case yet on a feeling level. I wasn't convinced until I met my teacher, Sokner and he started to coach me in other practices for working with the feeling level.
0: Were you aware that you weren't convinced?
1: No, I mean, you know, it's just like, you know, this is the spiritual bypass often where we, yeah, that's
0: what we I was can, getting at.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We can access something and, and, you know, have a lot of knowledge of it and be able to talk about it really well. And of course, some transformation, you know, I don't think it's either or. But um, but then until I feel, as Westerners, we're so good, or as modern people, we're so good at convincing ourselves intellectually, yet that experience isn't going deep, right? So I, I was definitely suffered from that for a lot of years of practice.
0: So how, so talk to me about the change between just studying Buddhism and wanting to become a monk. I mean, those are two very, Different things, especially in today's yeah. day in world where I feel like it's become even more pervasive so how, how how does that happen? How did you go from one to like this is what I need to do
1: yeah no, um, so so just kind of in in this sto- going back to kind of this the story I was talking about, so when I first encountered Buddhism, um, my first few teachers who I met um, one happened to be a monk, a Tibetan monk um, and and even before I met him, I just had a feeling like I really wanted to become a monk. There was something that when I saw yeah. pictures, when I thought about, I didn't even know what it meant to be a monk <laughs> or live as a monk. But I just had this strong feeling and that I wanted to do it, that it was like one of the most worthwhile things I could do. And um, and so there's no reasoning behind it, really, besides that. And thought- that was really a.
0: It's so interesting, too, because, like, you know, you hear all the time with kids. are like, if I don't see myself on screen. I don't even realize I can do it. And stereotypically, you don't look like a stereotypical monk, age-wise, no. <laughs> just like, right, ethnicity. So it's interesting that you just had this powerful feeling.
1: Yeah, and that's where, you know, the only thing I can attribute that to is the Buddhist principle of karma, where we we create habitual patterns from other uh, from past lives, and those, those come with us. You know, so this... So that's the only way I can explain it uh, from a, from a spiritual perspective. Of course, there's a ways we can explain it with neuroscience, I'm sure. But, um, but yeah, <laughs> I'll do that later. you know, I just had this, yeah, I had this <laughs> strong feeling and, and it didn't really become real for me until much later when I met other Western monastics, I learned about what it really meant to be a monastic in the Buddhist tradition. What would my life be like? Um, you know, the ups and downs, not, not really kind of, so it took some time to kind of Pop the fantasy bubble of like, you know, which was really useful for me because then it, it could enter a little bit more of a down to earth connection when I did it. Although it's still hard, like I still didn't have a clue what, what it was.
0: What was the biggest surprise for you in that like transformation?
1: Like when I actually became a monk. Yeah. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a good question. <laughs> There's so. Because like you were surprised. saying, you're just
0: talking about like the fantasy bubble. So then, what's the reality? Yeah. It's like you go in yeah, there and even though you probably prepared yourself for like the hard parts and but what was, what were you really like, holy shit, <laughs> this I wasn't expecting.
1: I think honestly, like working with sexuality is really hard. Um, and, and I was expecting it to be challenging, uh, where you just stop having sexual intimacy with people. Uh, I mean, that's what a Buddhist monastic does. Yep. Um, but it was, it was really hard in the beginning.
0: Well, no, I'm actually glad you brought it up because I really wanted to talk to you about it. Because you, you were, again, a reminder, 28 when you entered, it's not like you're 60 and you're like, you know, did been there, done that. It's like you're in like your prime. And so I can imagine how hard that was. So talk about that yeah. struggle, actually. And did you ever, were you ever fully okay with that struggle? Or is that part of something you struggled with till the end?
1: No, definitely. I struggle with till the end. And I think what I learned to do though, and what it became for me was a laboratory. So actually, and th- maybe this is within the surprise that I had to learn over time. I mean, the one of many, but, but interacting with sexuality, it's like, it's the main thing that comes to the front for a lot of people who become uh, monastics because you're working with the mind and the way we, we seek happiness. Right. And so uh, the, one of the strongest desires or the strongest pulls for us is sexual desire. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm not right. making a judgment call here. It's more in Buddhism, we're, we're, we're trying to really work with the mind and understand what is binding us. And of course, sexuality itself is not binding us, but our relationship to it can often bind us very much, right? I mean, just look at what a lot of our suffering comes from in relationship. It's a lot of that. <laughs> Thousand
0: percent. But it's interesting what you're saying, because doesn't it then beg the question how much of it is primal and just part of yeah, nature? Exactly. And so then in in doing this, how would you do that balance? And where, now that you're out of it, what do you yeah. think of having – explain a little bit why – and I get it. It's distracting. But at the core, if it's something primal and part of who we are naturally – why give it up
1: yeah i think it's again i don't think it's about giving it up because you don't cease to be a sexual being i think that was one of the surprises i had where you don't think of a monastic as a sexual being because they're abstaining from it but actually it's just that sexuality transforms and changes interesting and 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 so like in our modern society we don't look at it like that because we look at like something where we're stopping our or when we're, when we're working with the sexual urges or working with sexuality in a different way than what's the norm, we might view that as oppressive or, or uh, limiting. Right. Um, you know, when I became a monk, I started to recognize it's actually limiting to let it out all the time. Right. Huh. In, in the sense that we, we don't learn that way. We don't grow. That's what I meant by it became a laboratory for me of watching my body, watching my experience. And, uh, and then I went through all kinds of phases and ups and downs of that, like meaning phases where, uh, there's a lot of openness and, and, uh, um, kind of rest and ease in that process. And some just where you're white knuckling it. <laughs> <you> know,
0: <through.
1: laughs> um, and, and so, so yeah, but it, it, it kind of taught me that where I don't think I would have had that experience if I didn't become a monk because we're just constant, you know, we don't have to. We're not saying no here. We're not putting a boundary. And so a lot of the boundaries within Buddhist uh, vows, especially monastic vows, is kind of putting a boundary and then learning from that boundary. Because that boundary is not like a a religious dogma saying something's bad. It's more like a boundary to watch your mind and learn about yourself. Right.
0: That's that's such an interesting way of looking at it. And so then what do you feel like you learn most about yourself through that boundary?
1: (sighs) Uh, that I've got a lot of got a long way to go.
0: <laughs> it's not what we always want, <laughs> I, I guess.
1: Forward.
0: Does when you get ordained by the Dalai Lama, is that in person or is it how does that work?
1: It's by it's by Skype, no. Just
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh yeah, so so that's a longer story, so I'll I'll kind of try to keep it short just for the sake of time. But um so basically, I was advised by one of my teachers to go take it from the Dalai Lama, and you have to actually like apply. That's you
0: what I was going to say. How letters. did you get ordained by the Dalai Lama? Not that you're yeah, not you amazing. You
1: have to apply for it. You have to have two. What did you say? So
0: not that you're not amazing. <laughs> I was oh, like, how okay. did you get it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, you have to have um, like letters of recommendation, and and it and basically all the Westerners who want to get ordained by the Dalai Lama, they go through a com- kind of a really small committee who presents that to hit doc and Canadians, et cetera. And, um, and then I had to fill out an application and two letters of recommendation. And then I had to go to a three week preordination course, um, in, in Dhar- in, uh, McLeod Ganj, where the Dalai Lama lives. And that was run by a, a Spanish nun. I mean, she's a Buddhist nun, but she's Spanish. And, um, and then, yeah. And then, after we kind of, once they cleared us and they thought, okay, this person is okay to get ordained after the course, they kind of check you a little bit, then, um, yeah, we all went, and it's just, you spent a morning there, and uh, there was about 150 people taking ordination with me, uh, all from all over the world, Westerners, Tibetans, Koreans, Chinese, all, all different kinds of people, and um, and then it's kind of, by mass, he kind of gives you know, to the group three at a time. He gives you basically take the vows. It's not that; it's more like in your heart you're committing to that, and you're kind of repeating some pledges verbally. And but yeah, I was in the room, and then we got to take a picture with him. I was joking with someone today. I have the picture, and it feels like when I look at it now, it looks like the Dalai Lama. We just photoshopped him in there. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's you'll like, your arm so real. Yeah,
0: that's amazing. <laughs> but uh,
1: yeah, that's kind of the short version of how it how it came about. Yeah,
0: such an incredible experience.
1: It was, yeah. It was definitely, it was like a wedding day. <laughs> <laughs> I cried, for sure.
0: You did? Did you really?
1: <laughs> of course. It's like, it's a Dalai Lama. It's like, I don't know, people cry often at his teachings, but, you know, when you're really close to him like that. And then also it's just moving. It was just the
0: whole thing like, was moving. one of the
1: most special moments in my life.
0: Can I ask a personal uh, question? So how was it when you got out, the first time you actually could experience it without the boundary? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, Let's see.
0: Were you scared? Were you nervous? Were you ravenous? Were you like, no, what was the. I wasn't
1: this. Was um, it like, but,
0: You know what I mean? Like, what was, because I feel like.
1: I don't know. I, I gotta be careful with my words here, but <laughs> um, I would probably say. Um, actually, it was fine. I, I was gonna say underwhelmed, but actually, it wasn't underwhelming. It was just like, okay, that's about what I expected. Like, it's not a big deal. It's just like, it is what it is. You know, it's not something that has to become like the
0: spoken like a very present man. It is what it is. (laughs) Yeah,
1: it's just it's nice. And it's a way to share intimacy with 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 each other. And I feel that is powerful. And and it's a powerful way to connect with each other. Yet it's not like it's not everything. And it doesn't have to drive my life and nor anyone else's. Absolutely. as we mature and we age. We realize that. Right. So I think that was a that was an experience because because I had done it at a young age, like become a monk. Um, it's sort of like your your maturity and sexuality stunts a little bit in certain ways, or at least it did for me. And so so I had to learn that uh, by coming back to lay life and realizing, oh yeah, this is like yeah, it's just another thing, and it's and it can be beautiful and a way to share intimacy and connection, and you, it could also be a way to harm. And do a lot of uh, 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 experience a lot of pain, uh, for oneself or another. Right? What was so your, like...
0: yeah, no, I mean, you can experience a lot of pain for sure. Um, <laughs> pain and pleasure. That's why people get addicted. Um, <laughs> where, what do you think your biggest challenge in being a monk was? Isn't that what we just spoke about or were there like, why ultimately no. was it not right for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not that it wasn't right. It was right. I mean, it was a beautiful experience. I think just, you know, as we move through phases of life, we realize we, we may need different ways of being in the world in order to grow and mature. Um, I felt, um, personally, I mean, yeah, of course, like, uh, sexuality is a huge thing. And, and, and that's, like I said, that was a challenge throughout it. Um, like I said, periods of time, it, it got easier. And, but, but yeah, really, I think it was the, um, the isolation. Uh, the social isolation I felt. Um, And that is more a cultural thing where we're just not set up culturally um, with places to hold Western Buddhist monastics. There's a few monasteries and nunneries around in Europe and America. But um, in general, uh, most of us have to kind of be on our own. And um, it's lonely because there's, you know, you can have lots of friends, but there's always a glass wall between you. Or I felt a glass wall between myself and uh, my my non- monastic friends did you, you feel know?
0: that that glass wall was self-imposed or
1: yeah definitely part of it is self-imposed and part is just like you're trying to keep your vows and so that's on your mind and so you you can't just go to the movies anytime with someone or go to a bar you know even though you want to hang out with them so it's imposed yeah of course I decided to do that but um, it's also just part of the trainings and, and I really value that like I got a lot out of that those commitments and vows like they were beneficial for my practice at the time. And so I think for me, then it was just the challenge of, okay, well I think this has gone its course and now I need to have a little bit more ability to be, be intimate with people, not just sexually, just as friends or just as ever, uh, without, um, compromising my monastic vows, you know? And so, um, and so that's one of the reasons, uh, and then, and then as a, as a Dharma teacher and meditation teacher, I wanted to reach uh, a broader community. And, you know, when you're in monk's robes, people view you in a certain way. And I think there's a benefit to that in some way. Uh, and there's also the downside of like, you know, you're, you, I'm just a regular person. And I think I didn't, you know, you're like a walking billboard for Buddhism. And, you
0: know, <laughs> like if I you're going to the for, airport and you're in your, how do you feel like people were reacting to you?
1: Oh, they're like, who, you know, either like you're a freak and like, you know, like, like, like they're like, is it still Halloween? Like that kind of <laughs> look. Or, or, or really uh, like actually inspiring. Like I got, like the majority of the, the, I think interactions I had when people actually, it was beyond just the look and they came up one and talked was, uh, you know, it really felt a, a, a huge responsibility to wear those clothes, to wear those robes because they're looking to you as, um, someone who is holding you know a deep spirituality whether you are or not right you know? and so there is a responsibility there and, and I I enjoyed the interactions from that you know and I enjoyed uh that and sometimes I wasn't in a great mood of course like I <laughs> you know you had to just be there for people so that was kind of a nice aspect of it uh but I think uh, uh I, I definitely was happy to get my anonymity back Um, I get that. Yeah. Just being able to
0: disappear in a crowd. How, so when you started deciding when you could start feeling like in your soul that you might need to make a change, how was it while you were still, you know, while you were still practicing and you were still a monk, for instance, like, I feel like to me, a lame metaphor would be like when you're in a relationship and you just aren't feeling it anymore, or you know, something's wrong yeah. and it just makes everything about that relationship weird. It's like, everything's more intense. Everything's more extreme. Your reactions are worse because you're not living your truth. Like how was it for you towards the end before you fully knew where your head was at?
1: No, that was, that's exactly the analogy. I use the same exact analogy. It's like sort of being in love with someone, but you know, it's not going to work anymore. Ugh. And that went <laughs> on for dreaded. a year so so you know it's painful it's extraordinarily painful but i'm still in love with it i mean to this day talking to you i love being a monk like i loved it i love it i want to support it i support others doing it i i there's there's it's a wonderful way to engage with um the buddhist path and with the path of spiritual growth um and so yeah it was just painful because i part of me really wanted you know to keep it i just knew like I, I was not being, I was not like, I wasn't excited to keep it as much anymore. It was something I was falling out of love with, with Astros. I'm saying where the isolation got too much and, and, and yeah, it was hard to, I wanted a partner and that kind of thing.
0: So like a breakup, was it hard for you to tell your teacher? Like when you went through it, was that a very nerve wracking experience? Who was the first person you told?
1: Um, well, so there was a few people I was in connection with over the entire six months to a year. Um, you know, some monastic friends, as well as, um, my teacher. And so they knew, so it was like a process. It was like, and this is, um, something we work through in a monastic system where, where I did have monastic friends. I just didn't live with them. Um, meaning you're supposed to live in monastic community and that really helps to keep the structure of the vows. And that's what I lacked. I think I would have lasted longer if that would have been the case and I would have put myself in that kind of situation. So I highly advocate that for people thinking about it, find a community. Um, but anyways, I had friends, so we'd Skype taught, you know, Skype with other monastic friends or talk to them on the phone and they were really helpful. And so they knew, and, and there's a process of just kind of talking through it just like you would like a, a good friend about a, about a relationship issue. Uh, my teacher, he was just giving me advice. My main teacher throughout it. Um, And was super supportive and just open. And he didn't put pressure on me. He wanted me to make my own decision, but was also really supportive in giving the kind of pros and cons. And uh, and so, yeah, so I felt super supported throughout the whole process where I would say a lot of my friends who also had to give back their vows maybe weren't as supportive. So I feel pretty fortunate in that way of of having the support.
0: So identity-wise, like how hard is that? Like when you left, did you... I mean, I know so much of your journey and being part of there is about truly knowing who you are. But when you left, did you struggle with identity?
1: Oh, man. I think I struggled with identity more as a monastic. Ah, and,
0: interesting. And so,
1: yeah, because of this identity. Because I went through phases. So right. you first, I first took on this kind of, went through this phase of like, now I'm a monk. And I have no idea what that means, but I'm a monk. And it's like this <laughs> kind of male... Actually, strangely enough, there's kind of a little bit of, can be a macho dynamic among monks, which is weird because we're wearing, you know, dresses and all that. Um, But it's true. Um, And so I kind of felt like, and there was a pride around it in the beginning. And then that kind of popped about uh, four or five years in, and it it really helped when it popped because then I realized I'm just using this as a uh, spiritual practice. Um, and so it doesn't have to be a whole persona and identity. And so that was, there was a benefit to that because it allowed me more freedom in my own inner practice and meditation to work with identity and undoing wh- how identity binds us a lot of the time. Um, but also it, um, it, uh, it kind of was the beginning of the end <laughs> where then it was like, well, why do I stay a mom? You see what I'm saying?
0: But I mean, it's so and interesting so- how so many people use what they intensely believe as like a costume or a cover-up versus digging in and doing like the real work. It, it's fascinating that you, even within being a monk, went through that same kind of identity crisis.
1: Exactly. And I think it's kind of a necessary, I don't know, I don't know for other people, but, but for me, I think it was like a necessary process to kind of, you, you take on another identity. They deliberately do that. If you're kind of, You're giving up your old identity. You change your name, you shave your head, you change your appearance, you take on, you put on new clothes and then, and then there's a big part of that, but it's not to then take on a pride. It's meant to shift the identity into like, now we're entering a little bit more intense spiritual engagement, right? But then at a certain point, it was like, for me, it was the spiritual path is an inner path. Uh, what we do on the outside matters. It's connected to that, but it it but what we do on the outside should be a reflection of the inside, not the, the uh, vice versa, right? Because if the outers of if, if if we're doing something outer and that's we're trying to force that onto the inside, it's not real. It's not the real thing. It's just we're just faking it. So at a certain point, the identity kind of popped, and then I was left with a really rich practice, actually. So my last, you know, three or four years as a monk were were quite awesome for me because it was like just practice benefit from the vows try to benefit others when i can and uh try to not do harm and what's wonderful about the vows too is you're doing less harm in the world right um so it's quite beautiful uh and so and so when when i stopped being a monk actually it was like actually not much shifted for me to be honest like besides like outer things like having to pay rent (laughs) (laughs) and and you know, having a partner and stuff like that.
0: Where um, are you most comfortable?
1: Like physically?
0: Yeah, in life. Like, where do you feel the most comfortable?
1: I feel comfortable everywhere.
0: Really? Do you think part yeah. of that's your practice?
1: Yeah, because when I when I show up somewhere, and I I immediately put it into a practice. If it's if it's a, a if it's a funky place, into practice practice. If it's a beautiful paradise, in the practice. If it's the New York subway, in the practice. If it's the beach in Santa Monica, in the practice. And that for me is like one of the one of the major points of being a practitioner is we have to treat every moment as a moment of practice. And that talk, practice is not singular.
0: Can you talk every a little moment. bit about that? Like for people who don't fully understand how you're yeah. to. Because for instance, like in a very in in some ways someone might be like, but practice, what if you're with someone? Are you then not in the present moment? But you're actually talking about how to be in the present moment, correct? So like, can you talk a little bit what that means from your point of view of like you go into practice everywhere you go?
1: Yeah, I can give you some examples. So, um, you know, so sometimes we're using awareness to train the mind in in Buddhism to train it to stabilize in the present moment, right? Like training with a breath or something like that to concentrate, but we're only doing that as a tool for that awareness to be strong enough, that we then can engage in practices, growing our compassionate, our unconditional compassionate heart, or unconditional loving heart, uh, growing capacities of insight and inner wisdom, of trying to see, really, like what is true uh, within within my experience, uh, within our experience. And so, you know, a sweaty New York day, and <laughs> and I'm on the subway, and I'm uncomfortable, and just practicing with that that feeling of uncomfort, you know, like I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to be there. Some guys, you know, (laughs) I don't want to be in front of this guy in front of me in the subway. And the practice is about recognizing, you know, this is just one example. You know, I do this a lot where I'll just, you know, come into contact with that feeling. What's my need in that situation, giving myself a little bit of self-compassion for even the judgment itself, and then start to put myself in the shoes of others start to practice empathy and compassion noticing i'm not the only one in this sweaty you know subway uh uh waiting for the subway down here you know um all these other people are going through their own dynamics in this situation so um for me then it's bringing it into practice means understanding how this connects into that the world just doesn't revolve around me. you know that's one way to bring it into practice
0: so what's so interesting about that too is especially and maybe i'm getting it wrong but when you're a monk and you're practicing it seems very solitary and then like a lot of what you're talking about here this way to actually gain i don't want to say enlightenment because that's obviously further but gain this practice is with other people and situations like how can you talk about the duality of that
1: yeah i mean yes there is duality but also as a monk it was a lot of engagement too because you know you met me when i was traveling also and teaching a lot as a monk um so it was kind of similar but i think um but then there's just not that wall of like, when I'm on the subway, people don't view me as a monk. They view me as just this funky, you know, six foot two, half Jewish, half Italian guy or whatever they see, Right. <laughs> right. however they identify me. Uh, and so, um, so there's a difference there. But yeah, I, I, think, I think there could be a difference in the sense that, um, you know, you're not doing something that's separate from what most of society is doing. So there's kind of like, you know, at least outwardly, I'll put it that way, right? And, um, and so yeah, there's an opportunity for me personally, I don't think there was that much of a shift. So now I'm in places with much more activity and much more people, you know, as a monk, I lived in much more remote places doing a lot of retreat. So when I come out, there's definitely like that kind of immediate, like, excitement of being in a busy city or something like that. Now it's just like, eh, I'm like in midtown, I'm like. Uh, who cares you know like manhattan manhattan it's like whatever so like, <laughs> this is like same same day different it's so like the hustle and bustle day, of like stuff.
0: manhattan isn't too much like coming from where you were or no you actually Did
1: oh you no said... in the beginning super difficult, yeah. Yeah, super challenging Um, and, de- and I have my days like today I was like on the four express going to grand central to go teach a, a corporate meditation I was like what am I doing <laughs> you know, like, like, why am I on? this
0: What do you, now. what do you feel about the whole like mindfulness explosion? I mean, so much of mindfulness is rooted in Buddhism. How do you feel about it? Kind of like overtaking modern culture?
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think that
0: coming from like a practice of like lineages and kind of strict lineages yeah. and, and knowing your teaching, like how does it, how do you feel about it?
1: I feel like overall, There's, 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 of course, just like anything there's, there's benefit and, and potential harm, you know, and and that's just like any, so, I mean, I think, uh, I think it's a good thing. I would say more than a, more than a bad thing in the sense that just more people are getting access to techniques and practices for working with the mind and working with, you know, the stress and overwhelm, um, that we all, you know, experience these days in, in busy modern lives. So I think that's incredibly worthwhile, um, that, that part of it. And I think also um, it can also be treated like another commodity, like just another thing that we use, um, like taking a pill. And then it just doesn't, it's still, it's still helpful, but it, it just doesn't have that much efficacy for where meditation can really bring us when it, when it goes into a broader form. And I don't even mean Buddhist per se, I just mean broader. Um, And so, you know, now there's talk about mindfulness and how those affect ethics and, you know, talk about how not just mindfulness, but mindfulness and then compassion. So I don't know. I think overall it's a good thing. But just like anything we put out there these days, when it's when it's put into the machine of neoliberal capitalism, it it functions within that machine. Um, And so Buddhism, I just I don't think Buddhism will ever go into that machine because it's just it's not really. I don't know how to put it. Like, people try to put it into that. I think
0: people try, but, but I, I, just, I, I think you're right. I don't
1: know if it works so well when it, I mean, it, it just, because the essence of Buddhism, the more liberated you become, you're just not that interested in finding in, in finding your own worth and value through a material object. And so you just need less. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> I think but a, I don't know. It's a complex thing.
0: It, you're like, we could talk, we'll, we'll, bring you back on and talk about it. Let's go to our yeah. for you section, which is just four quick takeaways for our audience. Um, so I'll sure. just ask you four questions and then just kind of rattle off some quick answers. Who to you is your most inspirational teacher?
1: I mean, there's a lot, but, um, I think shay who's, who's well, one of my main teachers, uh, Lama Zokermache is one of the other ones. Um, the reason I say Shay I think just cause currently, um, he's the one I have a a little bit more of a personal relationship with at the moment. And he's just really always accepting and open. And I just feel, I don't, I never feel judged by him. Not like I have by my other teacher, Um, but, but I just feel it really directly from him. And even when it's kind of, he's being a little uh, uh, critical of something I'm doing, I don't feel it's coming from a judgment. I feel accepted and fully like, mm, I don't have to protect myself around him as much. Uh, in a sense. And so that's, that's just that's super joy. And that's, what's inspiring to me. Is like, how can we all live like that with compassion for others in our heart, where we can show up for others without judgment and still be like helpful, you know, still be useful and, and sort of even offer constructive criticism. It like sometimes. we're all looking
0: for that always for sure. Yeah. What type of meditation do you rely on the most for yourself?
1: I I think it's really similar to what I was saying about my subway example it's really opening to my to current experience um like what is happening for me right now and using the capacity of awareness that i've grown in meditation over the years to look towards my body and mind and to acknowledge that and to be with that and not to judge that experience and so a lot of what i do is just kind of watch the experience i may watch a certain thought process as it's happening i may watch a certain feeling or sense uh sense experience in the body as it's happening you know if i can in that moment sometimes i can't obviously (laughs) so yeah that's that's kind of my main practice
0: what's a helpful tip you would give people for a deeper meditation
1: i think put the right amount of effort and don't be too pushy
0: pushy interesting
1: yeah so like we need effort um because sometimes we want relaxation but we want to get relaxation by like, just like doing nothing and completely spacing out. Right. And that's not real relaxation. That's just like kind of sleeping, you know, or kind of uh, spacing out. And so I think if we find that, that space between the right amount of effort and the right amount of ease, meaning, uh, you know, not being too pushy on one side and then finding just that relaxed effort, That's, that would be kind of like my biggest tip because that applies to any meditation practice, no matter what you're doing.
0: Absolutely. So this one I'm curious about, what's been your best worst day ever?
1: Yeah. um, There's a lot of them. (laughs) (laughs) And I was kind of thinking about the day, uh, not the day my mom died, but the, the day we held her funeral was kind of my best and worst day because um, I just didn't want to be there I didn't want to have to interact with people I'm kind of an extroverted introvert where i like kind of burn out or I get energy with people but then I burn out at a certain moment and need to be alone uh, or at least maybe that's the story I tell myself right <laughs> and at at her funeral um, I just was overloaded and kind of and it was of course of course emotionally overloading and, and a lot of grief coming up and then um we were, she was buried she's buried in, in, a, in a place overlooking uh the ocean near san francisco and and there's a mountain and it's on a mountaintop and i remember so i was having this really bad day and then i just kind of walked away from the crap and just sat and looked and the sky actually parted oh. uh, and it was a kind of a cloudy day and kind of light came through and i felt this grace and again something i couldn't explain i didn't really believe in god per se at that point in my life but I felt this grace that everything was going to be okay. And uh, so it was like, and, and that's that was the moment, actually, I think that started my spiritual journey because I couldn't explain that experience, you
0: know. Do you feel like your mom with you? Like, I don't know what your take is on that and spirituality in that regard, but.
1: Just... Yeah, um, I, I don't so much anymore, but I did, I think in that moment for sure. And then and then around the time of her death, for sure. Definitely, no question.
0: What are In you, a really
1: positive force.
0: And you really what? Say that again, the last thing. Oh,
1: in, in a really positive way. A
0: positive way. Is your dad still around?
1: Yeah, yeah. He's alive. He lives in, uh, in the Bay Area.
0: Are you guys close?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was just with him. I just gave some teachings in the Bay Area. We hung out.
0: How was he with your whole journey, in and out? <laughs> was he supportive of the whole thing? Was it weird for him? Totally easy for him?
1: He's He's cool, because he loves the Dalai Lama. <laughs> he's got a picture of the Dalai Lama like in his room and he's not like Buddhist, but he just loves him. And, um, and so he was really proud. I think when I became a monk, which is, which is rare because a lot of parents freak out you know? Yeah. and he was really cool. And then, um, I think coming out of it, I could sense like, uh, I don't know how he felt. He didn't really tell me he, he just wanted me to be happy. You know, wanted me to be doing, of course, like any parent just doing what I wanted to be doing. And I think mostly you want to make sure you're like, uh, I was, I was going to be able to support myself. financially,
0: Like any parent too. I mean, you say like any parent, but a lot of parents aren't like that. So, you know what, it's really nice yeah. that you have a supportive dad. No,
1: I feel really blessed like, to have a father like that who is super supportive on, on going in of being a monk and out.
0: That's great. This has been an amazing conversation obviously you're going to give us your personal practice, which is going to be a five to 10 minute meditation on working skillfully with difficult emotions. But I just want to say thank sure. you because it's such a mysterious world for so many people. People talk about Buddhism, but especially like being a monk and you being so young and being able to speak about it in such practicality and openness and honesty, I think is such a gift for all of us. So thank you for mm-hmm.
1: that. Thanks Saul. This was awesome. Yeah, I really
0: no, I, I always love talking to you. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta do it more. We will. We'll get (laughs) you back on. And when you but next time you're in LA, you'll come to the den.
1: Awesome, I will. I'd love to.
0: Well, thank you. Thanks, Tom. And now we're gonna start the personal practice, working skillfully with difficult emotions.
1: Okay, so we'll just take a moment, just find a posture that's relaxed yet alert. straightening our spine just a bit maybe rolling our shoulders gently stretching our neck just to come into a nice relaxed posture and taking in a few deep breaths through the nose just letting the breath soothe the nervous system just preparing our body and mind for the practice And on an exhale, we come into the body, dropping our attention and awareness into the feeling of our feet touching the earth beneath us, the feeling of our sit bones touching the chair or cushion beneath us, feeling of our hands on our knees or in our lap. So starting to pay attention to the sensations and feelings in the body. here, just inviting you to become aware of any emotions, moods, or just sensations that are up for you right now. So here, we're connecting with not the thought of an emotion, but the feeling around an emotion, be it a comfortable emotion, a difficult emotion, Or, of course, if something's just pleasant for you right now or neutral, that's fine too. But just bring your awareness to observe that experience and just let be with that for a moment. If it's an uncomfortable sensation or emotion, such as anxiety or sadness, just see if you can bring a gentle warmth, just a very gentle friendliness. Not to try to improve the emotion, but just to bear witness to it without judgment. But here we're going to explore the contents of our world of feeling for what they are, as they are. You don't have to label them. We notice we start to analyze them just continue to drop the awareness back into the feeling and we just let be with that feeling again and again waiting just allowing this platform of openness and non-judgment so here As we let be. Letting be doesn't mean. We bring in something from the outside. Or some other kind of feeling. To replace the one that we're experiencing now. Letting be means. We actually feel it as it is. Become aware. And wait with it. So here we're offering. A compassionate presence. Whatever is arising for us. A willingness to be with something that might be a little bit uncomfortable, not because we're trying to punish ourselves or just make ourselves feel something uncomfortable, but because often when we push something away or when we feel something that's uncomfortable and we push it away, we often suppress it. And just like feeding a monster that grows bigger and bigger and bigger, We don't offer an opportunity for it to heal. We don't offer it an opportunity to just express itself as it is. So here, we're just bearing witness in the space, not suppressing on one side, but also we're not being completely hijacked by the experience because we're becoming aware of it. Often we want to fix our emotions, especially if they're difficult or challenging. Often we want to come in and rescue them, or we use the mechanisms of avoidance or suppressing. We have to ask ourselves, has that really worked? Usually for me, when I feel anxiety, if I fight the anxiety, it usually gets worse. And instead if I come to feel, what does that anxiety feel like in the body and I just let be with that? Whether it goes or comes, I find peace. So I'm not resisting, not holding tension anymore. And of course, on its own, just like clouds moving through a sky, our emotions change. But at least here, we're giving them our full, compassionate awareness. So, on a daily basis, we can do this from time to time whenever something challenging comes up for us. Just taking a moment to bear witness in this way. Drop into the body and feel. Without an agenda. Without suppressing. Without being caught up in it. Offering us and offering ourselves the medicine of non judgment, the medicine of letting be. But for now, just letting our attention and awareness move out from the feeling, from any emotions we may be bearing witness to, back into the feeling of our feet touching the ground beneath us, the feeling of our hands on our legs or in our lap. And again, connecting with the breath, taking a few deep inhales through the nose and exhales either out of the nose or out of the mouth. Just letting the breath soothe again our nervous system And on an exhale, just gently opening our eyes, coming back into the room, just noticing any shifts that may have happened for ourselves, staying with the body and really bringing that into our day.
0: Dentox is produced by Michael Burke, Mike Burns, Reem Eden, Nicole Rappi, and music by Alex Fetter.